Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders. I really thank you for tuning in again today, and I invite you to go to outcomesrocket.health slash reviews. Leave us a rating and review. Let us know what you thought about today's podcast. Our guest, his name is Charlie Whelan. He's the Director of Consulting for Frost & Sullivan's Healthcare Group out of San Antonio, Texas. Charlie's done his fair share in healthcare for almost two decades at Frost, and he's really passionate about a lot of subjects in healthcare, but in particular, very passionate about OSA, obstructive sleep apnea. And so what we're going to do today on this episode is focus on the work that they've done in this area. But before we dive into the content, I just wanted to open up the floor for Charlie to Give us a little bit more about him, and then we could dive into what we're going to talk about today. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, all. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So um, as you mentioned, I'm with Frost & Sullivan. We're a global market research and consulting company with with offices all around the world. And we spend most of our time working with industries that are developing new technologies, helping them to evaluate the market opportunity for those technologies and, and the impact on them. Over the last four or five years, we've had the opportunity to work with a significant number of companies developing new technologies in the sleep marketplace. Most of those are focused on obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea, and we've developed a significant body of knowledge about that topic. Last year, we had the privilege of doing two commissioned papers for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. where we surveyed 506 people who were treating their sleep apnea. These are people who were diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea and decided to treat that condition. And we asked them what life was like before they started treating it and what life was like after they started treating it. So that was one white paper. The other white paper that we did is we actually reviewed more than 100 studies on the financial impact of obstructive sleep apnea and combine that with the survey results to quantify for the first time really what the effect is economically when the United States undertreats obstructive sleep apnea. It's a huge problem. Yeah, for sure. And we had a chance to connect before this podcast, Charlie, and you were sharing some of the numbers, uh, the statistics. How many people have it? How bad is it? That it, How poorly is it misdiagnosed? Can you run into some of those numbers? I was surprised. Yeah, I'll go through some of those. So we estimate there's probably about 30 million Americans with obstructive sleep apnea today. There's two, there's two types of sleep apnea. There's obstructive sleep apnea, and that's when your airway, your throat, your, your tongue, your nose basically collapses in on itself while you're sleeping. The other type is central sleep apnea, and I describe that to folks, that that's basically your brain forgets how to sleep. There's mm-hmm. some people with mixed sleep apnea. Most people have obstructive sleep apnea when we're talking about that. A lot of that is being driven by the obesity epidemic in our country, but some of it is also related to the aging demographics that we have in this country. 
that are associated with it. But a lot of it has to do with weight gain. So of that 30 million people that have obstructive sleep apnea, we think somewhere between 80 to 85% of those people uh, are undiagnosed today. A lot of those have mild to moderate symptoms, but there are still many, many people out there, probably millions of people with severe sleep apnea that are not being treated for the condition. We think somewhere on the order of about 6 million Americans actually have diagnosed sleep apnea. And most of those are being treated usually with positive airway pressure or CPAP machines. But there are other treatments for it, such as oral appliances, which can pull the mouth forward to open up the airway. Some surgery can be beneficial for certain types of patients. And then there are, of course, lifestyle treatments too that can be beneficial, such as positioning yourself better while you sleep. But it's a huge economic problem as well. Yeah, Charlie, the numbers are are pretty staggering that so many cases go undiagnosed. And these reports are pretty interesting. Um, I, I like the artwork on the cover. It's a picture of a, a the, both of them, actually, a picture of a, a very upset wife or, or girlfriend just covering her ears and uh, as the husband snores away and she can't sleep. And it could be the other way too, right, Charlie? Oh, absolutely. Now, we believe that most people with obstructive sleep apnea is disproportionately male. Men have thicker necks mm. and thicker necks contribute to more obstructive sleep apnea. But We are seeing, again, with the obesity epidemic, more and more women with the condition as well. So it is a serious problem for both sexes. And to your point on the cover artwork, it's kind of funny, but in our research, we actually found that people's interpersonal relationships with their bed partners, family members, employers actually improved significantly once they started getting their sleep apnea treated and under control. That's so interesting. So we were actually able to quantify some of that. So, you know, you might actually be saving your marriage by treating your sleep apnea. <laughs> Listeners, there you have it. If you are maybe snoring a little too much, if you're a male snoring a little too much, it might mean you should get checked out. You might have OSA, potentially save your marriage there. It's one of those things that does matter. I, I was, and you said coworkers too. I was traveling with a coworker and it was early in my career. We, we had to share a room. And let me tell you, this guy was just snoring his lungs off and I just couldn't sleep. And it made, it made it tough that whole, whole week that I was uh, at that project with him. And it just, it was hard. So I totally believe it. Charlie, what would you say some of the barriers to diagnosing and treating OSA are? Well, there are a couple of them. If we start with the patients themselves, the first thing is, is recognizing the symptoms of the condition. It's commonly said that snoring is, is the same as sleep apnea. It's, it's actually not. Sleep apnea is when people stop breathing intermittently while they're sleeping, which is not quite the same thing as snoring. However, the two are often hand in hand. So if you're a heavy snorer, there is a good chance that you've also got some of the same risk factors for sleep apnea as well. Daytime sleepiness is another big predictor for that. And then also you look at your body mass index, you look at your age, you look at your neck circumference. If it's over 17 inches in your collar, there's a good chance that uh, you might be at risk for that as well. And then you look at other comorbidities as well too. So if you've got diabetes, if you've got heart problems, these might be indicators that you need to look into it and get it identified. So simply awareness is a big challenge. And then one of the the other barriers to to treatment is 
the, the current approach toward diagnosing the condition is, is pretty cumbersome. So in about 85% of cases, we have a healthcare system that requires people suspected of obstructive sleep apnea to spend one and possibly two nights overnight doing a polysomnogram. It's an expensive test. It's cumbersome and it's uncomfortable. It's no fun. And it requires people to actually wear a, a, a CPAP machine during the test, as well as uh, electrode leads and other types of things that make it really miserable and uncomfortable. So a lot of people don't want to go through that. They say, well, maybe I have this condition. I'll learn to live with it. So mm-hmm. that's a big barrier. Is there a way there to do all... that at home? There is. So there is a home sleep testing technology. It doesn't measure all of the same parameters as a in-clinic polysomnogram. And we're in an interesting point in the sleep industry where clinicians and payers are debating about whether in-clinic test is absolutely necessary for everybody suspected of sleep apnea. Can we test somebody at home? Is that good enough to begin treatments? I'm of the opinion that that is for many people and that we ought to be much more aggressive about using home sleep testing and auto-PAP technologies to get more people on treatment sooner and easier. Yeah, for sure. That's good to know that there's already something there and maybe just somehow getting a broader interest in getting some of those tests to people at home. Because to your point, if this is one of the burdens that you got to be at the hospital two nights, it's cumbersome, why not just get that done at home so that you could start avoiding some of the issues that come with it? Yeah. So that's one of the big barriers. And then once people have a diagnosis, in most cases, almost like 95% of the cases, treatment is going to be a positive airway pressure mask that you have to wear basically for the rest of your life. And that's no fun. Nobody enjoys that idea. So there are a significant number of companies trying to make positive airway pressure either more comfortable, tolerable, or finding just right alternatives. You know, one of them is those oral appliances that I mentioned, which are underutilized in this country compared to other countries, which use them much more. And there's a lot of interest in implantable neurostimulators, which could take the place of a PAP for, for some patients, particularly those with central sleep apnea. But there's just a lot of interest and in recognition that you know, more than half of people diagnosed with OSA either start PAP and fail it and don't stick with it after three months, or they never begin it in the first place. They get the diagnosis. The doctor says, hey, use this PAP stuff. They're like, no way. I'll just live with the consequences because it is such a difficult therapy to, to maintain. I will say that our research shows pretty uh, equivocally that those patients who do stick with positive airway pressure are extremely happy with it and have recognized some significant health benefits in many, many areas, but they're kind of the minority. And so the challenge is how do we get more people to tolerate this? Whatever therapy they choose to stick with, people need to start getting treated. Charlie, I oftentimes think of, uh, you know, just compliance to a routine and just being able to adhere, adopt a, a clinical protocol. It really comes down to leverage. And if the leverage for the patient is strong enough, they're gonna follow through. I mean, is this life or death? Or is it something with just smaller consequences that add up over time? Like, can you go into some some of that intel? Yeah, absolutely. So for many patients, it can be life or death. So 
we know for a fact we have very strong clinical data that we reviewed that shows people who have untreated obstructive sleep apnea can uh, have a much higher risk of mortality associated with cardiovascular disease and diabetes. We asked, you know, this is not scientific, but we asked those patients that we surveyed, uh, did they have some of those other health conditions? And it was a very strong comorbidity correlation. So uh, it was about half of these patients were diabetic and had hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And they reported that their perception of uh, their HbA1c levels in the case of diabetics or, or blood pressure for hypertensives uh, all improved once they got their sleep apnea under control. So the other thing that this therapy has going for it is that people can see the benefits of themselves for, of it in quality of life on day one. So if you can learn to live with the mask, you can see the benefits starting on the next day. And you can't say the same thing for many other medical therapies. You know, right? You can't say that if you're on a blood pressure pill that you feel better the next day after your first blood pressure pill. You just take it because you're told to. This is a case where you can actually see the benefits very, very quickly. And then it's just learning to adapt and live with it, work it into your lifestyle. Let's think society. Let's think the broader U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about the economic burden of undiagnosed and untreated OSA? Sure. So our research suggests that the costs associated with OSA are about $162 billion a year. Only about $12 billion is actually going towards diagnosing and treating people with the condition. About $150 billion is associated with not treating the condition. So it's a significant impact. That's About, huge. Yeah, a little more than half of that, by our estimation, is associated with lost productivity. So this could be one of two things. It could be lower productivity at work or higher absenteeism. So right. what we did in our calculations is we actually found among the people that were employed that they actually, once they got their sleep apnea under control, that they gained, they reported to us that they gained 1.2 hours of productivity every day at work. And so when you extrapolate that out across the tens of millions of Americans with undiagnosed, untreated sleep apnea, and you add 1.2 hours of productivity every day if they were actually being treated, the numbers are huge in terms of how they add up. Yes. The other thing that we found is that people who got their sleep apnea under control had 40% fewer work-related absences. And you add that up as well, and the benefits are significant. So productivity improvement was, was a big one that's a little bit of a soft cost. We also looked at motor vehicle accidents, which accounted for about $26 billion, both commercial and non-commercial accidents workplace accidents at about $6 billion, and then about $30 billion associated with some of the most significant comorbidities associated with the condition, like hypertension, heart disease, diabetes, asthma, insomnia, and uh, mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, and mental health. We calculated that we could see some significant savings associated with caring for those conditions if we actually we're more aggressive about addressing sleep apnea as well. That is really interesting. I never even thought that this was such a big problem and 
when you think about it from a productivity standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. I just know when I get a good amount of sleep, I know that the next day it's going to be way more productive. And just thinking about those decisions that I make to get to bed earlier. But then the folks with OSA, they have to think about breathing better and sleeping better because of it. And it makes a lot of sense, Charlie. How about the different players in the market and sort of how this means economic impact to payers, to employers, to patients? Yeah, so we think that getting this under control is going to be a net benefit for everybody. Obviously, patients are going to benefit from a health perspective. They're going to benefit from an economic perspective, too, because they're going to be able to get more done, uh, have more energy, take more opportunities to, to grow themselves. Employers obviously will see a huge benefit from improved productivity gains, fewer accidents as well, uh, less what we call cyber loafing, where people are not really getting anything done. They're just sort of goofing off at, uh, at work. Payers, we expect we'll see a benefit as well. And that's, that's an area where there have been some resistance to covering more people with sleep apnea for the condition. So, for example, one of the things that's happened over the last five or 10 years is that payers have required that clinicians demonstrate that patients are compliant for about three months on their CPAP machines before the payers are willing to pay for those CPAP machines. And while that is, it is a, a challenging task to meet, I think it does make sense. The payers want to make sure that people are going to use this. And the most progressive payers out there do recognize that this is a big challenge, but they're frustrated with the lower compliance as well. and They want to see that improved. So I think things need to be done in terms of the delivery of care and the management of expectations for these patients to make sure that they're screened earlier, they're diagnosed earlier, they're more aggressively treated, and that we are using a treatment approach that they can live with, stick with, so that everybody can win. I mean, this is really a win-win opportunity for everyone, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's so interesting, Charlie, when, when you think of health and the implications of behavior on health, it's hard. I mean, when you're really wanting to manage people's behaviors and what they do, that's tough. I wonder what could be done from an environmental perspective, either in the home, educational videos, that kind of thing to help sort of nudge people toward that. Well, I think that probably has the biggest impact simply on screening and increasing awareness. So letting people know that their sleep is important, that if they have symptoms, that they don't just learn to live with it, which is the common thing that we all do. I mean, we've all been sleepy. We've all wished that we had more sleep, but it's hard to know when that is a serious problem and when when it's just a typical day when you didn't get a good night's rest. So it is a little bit subjective, and I think patients could benefit from getting some more guidance on when they should be worried. And a lot of that has to do with looking at pretty well-established risk factors associated with weight and age and other comorbidities, and then maybe not relying so much on just subjectivity. But there are pretty well-established sleepiness scales and sleepiness tools that can be used and other kind of risk assessments. I think that's good. And in terms of getting improved compliance with actual treatments itself, I think a lot of that really has to come down to setting expectations, getting better technologies and treatments out there for them to use. One thing I I remind people is that sleep medicine as a discipline, as a field, is relatively young. It's only maybe 40, 50 years old, depending on who you ask. 
even positive airway pressure as a treatment is relatively young. It's only a couple decades old. So we're still in the process where we're actually still exploring what the best treatments are and creating new approaches that can better serve individuals. Yeah, this is super insightful. And so listeners, there is way more than we've covered here. We've come here to the end. But Charlie actually wants to share these two white papers with you. And so these white papers will be available at outcomesrocket.health slash sleep, S-L-E-E-P. And so Charlie, I'd love if you could just share some closing thoughts and the best place that the listeners could follow what you're doing and what your partners associated with this project are doing. Right. So I would say stay tuned. There uh, is a lot of activity, both in terms of investment and professional activity in the sleep medicine space. Just this week at Consumer Electronics Show, there, of course, is always a big splash around new sleep technologies. It's going to be an important year for a number of major breakthroughs. I was reading just yesterday about a new sleep technology company that raised $50 million in investment for their new technology. So it's a really hot field of of investment and, and innovation. It's also an important area for research as well and investment. I like to tell people, I think sleep is kind of like today where nutrition was 20, 30 years ago. Back then, we didn't take what we eat as seriously as we do today. We didn't see the connections between what we ate and all of our other health outcomes. And I think we're at the cusp where we're starting to appreciate sleep in the same way and taking it much more seriously than we have in the past. So it's an exciting field to be in. Charlie, this has been insightful. Again, listeners, go to outcomesrocket.health slash sleep and you'll be able to find those articles as well as more links that Charlie is going to share with you to dive into OSA further and what you can do to help yourself, help those around you diagnose and also take care of it. So Charlie, just want to say thank you once again for sharing your knowledge and looking forward to staying in touch. Thanks all. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 